Hello, you're listening to Prevention is the New Cure, a podcast about all things health and the NHS with a very political twist. With me, Steve Bryan, the MP for Winchester, Chair of the Health Select Committee, and Dr. Helen Stokes Lampard. Good afternoon, Helen. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? How are you feeling um, better? I am feeling a little bit better, yes, but uh, we might come on to this later. There's an awful lot of things going around, isn't there? There certainly are. Every GP will confirm to you there's a lot of it around and paracetamol rest and fluids are probably the answer. But we'll come um, back to that. No guests today because uh, there's just so many things to talk about. And every time we do the podcast, I think oh, it probably end up being a shorter edition this this time because there's not an awful lot kicking around. And then there's an awful lot kicking around. So <laughs> this is episode 19. Prevention is the new cure. Uh, last time we spoke, we'd obviously just had the cabinet reshuffle. Um, Victoria Atkins confirmed as the new Secretary of State. And we now have the full ministerial team. So Helen Waitley stays as Minister of State looking after social care. Maria right. Caulfield, she stays as uh, looking after mental health and women's health strategy. Lord Markham, Nick Markham, he's the minister in the Lords, so he's looking after all the new hospitals programme stuff still. He stays in post. Right. And then two new ones. Andrew Stevenson is the Minister of State for Health and Secondary Care. So he's doing hospitals, reconfiguration, secondary care, plus the major condition strategy and cancer. Okay. I've just, just literally had a chat with him over lunch to give him the wisdom or otherwise of my experience. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, make up the team, we have Andrea Ledson, who's doing by a large, my old job, which is public health and primary care. So she looks after a lot of the prevention stuff. So screening, tobacco, diet, obesity, sexual health, pharmacy, social prescribing, all of that. So that's the team. That's a really long list that Andrea's got. It'd be really good if we could get her along to the pod sometime because, I mean, obviously, you know, my special interest in social prescribing and my involvement with the National Academy of Social Prescribing, but so much of what we talk about here comes under her brief. So uh, interesting that the long-term condition strategy goes under secondary care when the vast majority of what done is covered by primary care any yeah, thoughts on that? i mean the sh the shakedown as it's called which is you know when min the secretary of state decides which minister holds which particular brief it, it, at the end of the day it's 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 all got to go somewhere and it can't all go to one person and so um <laughs> it, it all it all seemed to go to me uh but anyway um it seems to <laughs> be spread out <laughs> yeah i was bitter yeah but no but it'd be good to talk to andrea i mean she andrea of course former business secretary former leader of the house mm. what she really cares about is what we call the start for life stuff. So the first thousand and one days uh -huh. of a child's life and how we nurture other or otherwise children in those early days, how that determines their outcomes, health, society, educational throughout their lives. And she's really, really passionate about this. She's done a, she's really invested in it, really being consistent on that. Obviously there are massive prevention uh, angles to that mm, agenda. So, totally. you know, we could talk to her about that. That would be excellent. Andrea, this is an invitation. Please come along to the podcast. We're looking yeah. forward to chatting with you. So what are we going to start with? Should we get industrial action out of the way? Yeah, good news. I'm, I'm doctor's industrial action. Yes, go on. Talk about it, Steve. Well, look, good news is that uh, there is the consultants who have been on strike for less time than junior doctors mm. appear appear the bma the junior doc the the doctors union appear to have reached agreement with the government that will now of course go to ballot among consultants through the consultants committee of the bma and i mean basically what they had was a headline pay increase of six percent which they didn't like 
and they rejected that. That's what was announced, recommended by the independent NHS pay review body. Yeah. And uh, and the government said, that's it. Uh, strike action continued, and the government have now come back with additional investment of about 3.5% on top of that. But crucially, it won't be this year. So it'll be, it'll be backdated from next year. So it doesn't affect what you call the headline pay. And, and and I think critically, Helen, it's gradient. So the better paid consultants yeah. will not see an uplift in their pay. Ah, whereas okay. the lower the lower paid consultants, if if that's not an oxymoron, um, will, could some of them could see 12-13% increase in their okay. pay. So um so 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 it's so it's 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 on a gradient, which I think seems to make sense. I mean, you tell me what do you think the feeling is? Do you think the BMA will accept it in the ballot? Well, it's the individual consultants that will be voting on it over Christmas and New Year. And I I mean, I think there's definitely an appetite amongst consultants to move things forward. I think people are, are fed up and do want to put this behind them. But I mean, who knows how they'll vote? I mean, there are a few other interesting things that I picked up from the proposal. Um, one uh, which is of interest to me as an academic is that they're going to scrap local clinical excellence awards. Um these are like supplementary points for people who give outstanding service and above and beyond what they're contracted to do, which have often been used to reward people who do academic work. There's a national scheme, but there are also local schemes too. And there has been a lot of challenge that it's hard to keep these fair. Um, it, it, some disciplines do better in clinical excellence awards than others. So it's interesting they're going to scrap the local ones um, and it'll only be national ones. We've we've not had local clinical excellence awards for GPs uh, for, oh gosh, eight years, perhaps, perhaps 10 years thinking about it. Um, and what, well, it's been a big disincentive then to people in academic general practice. So I hope it doesn't have a knock-on effect in academia more widely. Um, but there is certainly something about spreading the money amongst everybody. I think there's going to be a good proposal about parental leave. Uh, they're going to improve shared parental leave so consultants would be treated the same as other NHS staff. I mean, it always seems to me ridiculous that they weren't before. So I think that seems very fair and sensible. Um, and I think one other thing that employers, specifically NHS employers, will be pleased about is the rate card. This is a sort of set, a series of fees that the BMA had been recommending that senior doctors charge for their time if they're doing overtime or locums. Apparently, that's going to be scrapped. So there's quite a bundle of things. I'm sure there's plenty more in there as well, but um, those are the ones I'm aware of. Yeah, and so in answer to your question that I think you posed on our on our WhatsApp group for the podcast, you know, is there new money for mm. this i think the answer to that is no because what this does is it reprioritizes money into pay from other areas some of which you've just mentioned so around yeah. the excellence awards around the rate card um and and i suppose you know that that was the quid pro quo and that's what the employers will have to deal with as a result but you know if the consultants were withdrawing their labor because they didn't feel they were paid enough then to pay them more you either have to find new money from the treasury, which as we know, there's not an awful lot of, yeah. or you have to move money around the system. And I think it looks like the latter. Now, of course, the big one is the junior doctors and there mm -hmm. has been no news at all yeah. on the junior doctors dispute. Uh, they of course will now want at the very least the same as the consultants offer. 
And I presume talks, well, I hope talks are now accelerating back with the BMA Junior Doctors Committee. But in terms of hitting the Prime Minister's target of reducing the waiting lists and the pressure on the, on the secondary sector, it's the JD's strike that's really impacting more than the consultants, isn't it? I mean, them together is the nightmare scenario, but there are obviously more JD's than there are consultants. There certainly are, although actually consultants with some other types of doctor or other healthcare professionals can still run clinics and theatres, whereas junior doctors cannot do what consultants do. So it, it's it's a very mixed thing. I think it would be really good if we saw the consultants' action brought to an end very swiftly. So I'm hoping, personally, that the vote is to accept the offer if it is uh, as presented. Um, in terms of junior doctors, like you, I haven't heard anything to suggest that there's any progress there. And I'm not even hearing that in, the talks are underway. So I just really hope that this will be an impetus to things to start moving forward again. But I tell you who is upset, Steve. Nurses. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pat Kellen has been speaking out very strongly about it. That's the chief exec of the RCN. Do you know Pat? I do know Pat, and I know that the RCN are, are absolutely incensed because they received a 5% uplift and a yeah. non-consolidated bonus for 23-24. Uh, although the RCN, of course, was never happy about it, um, but it, it, no. was, it, ended, it ended up being imposed. And so, yeah, they're pretty cross. And cross nurses, not in my experience, a great thing. Definitely, definitely not a good thing. Anyway, okay. should we move on? Let's move on. Um, I want to talk about New Zealand. An amazing country, wonderful people. Yes, wonderful Such people. Such culture. And not ideal for me being a conservative politician is that the new conservative government in New Zealand mm. has indicated its decision to row back and repeal its anti-smoking legislation. Now, New Zealand was very much the apple of the prime minister's eye mm -hmm. here in terms of, you know, how he announced, we've talked about it before, that nobody over the age of 14 now will ever be able to legally buy cigarettes because we're going to change the law in this country. It was announced in the King's speech. They have already had that in New Zealand for some time, but the incoming government there says it doesn't like it. And it's going to repeal that legislation that the Jacinda Ardern's government put forward. Um, Steve, so this, is, this is terrible. I mean, this, bad is, news. this is horrendous, Newton. I mean, of all the bad things from a public and population health point of view, this is appalling. And I'm really deeply saddened about this. And this is a consequence of a, them trying to form a coalition government, I understand. Yeah. And, and this is one reason why I do not like proportional representation, because I think New Zealand First, which is the one party that campaigned on repealing this smoking legislation, they got 6% of the vote. But of course, if you put their members together with the largest party, you form a coalition. One of the things that they asked for is the price for them entering the coalition. Uh, this is what happens with proportional representation is that it's all dealt with afterwards in dark rooms uh was that was the price repeal the smoking laws people price. people will die because yes. of this and uh and you know, my brother-in-law and his family uh, recently moved to to christchurch in new zealand and uh i they're both doctors so i will look forward to hearing when we have the christmas zoom call mm. i should look forward to hearing what they have to say about it but i mean i just hope that the uk government doesn't get wobbly on this one i don't think for a minute it will i i think there would be a massive backlash if they did i really hope they do i mean the public health experts in new zealand are absolutely up in arms um i had i i had a great quote from one of the tobacco control researchers in the university of otago who said we are utterly appalled and disgusted this is an incredibly retrograde step and so on. And I think that sums it up beautifully. I mean, this this is bad news, disappointing news. And I think New Zealand, having been a flag bearer for the world, have now just put themselves at the back of the queue. 
Yeah. Beautiful country, ugly decision. Let's take a break. Welcome back. Uh, now, we are going to talk a bit about HIV, Helen. Now, we had an Good. HIV special with Professor Kevin Fenton we uh, a few months ago, which was one of our best listened to episodes. And we're going to talk about it because the end of the Yellow Brick Road reaches Westminster tonight, as we're recording this on <laughs> Wednesday afternoon. It goes out uh, Thursdays, as as the listeners know. Why does the end of the Yellow Brick Road reach Westminster, Helen? Could it be to do with lots of sparkle coming to visit Westminster tonight? Lots there of sparkle, is sparkle. great music. There are big glasses and there is Sir Elton John. who Yay, is gonna be the legend. In, yeah, he's going to be in the house uh, this evening, Wednesday evening, um, for a special reception in Speaker's House, which has been organised by the All-Party Group on HIV and AIDS, which I'm very fortunate to co-chair with some of my colleagues, and he's going to be coming to see us and uh, saying a few words. And the government are going to be announcing, which will be out by the time this this episode comes out, they're going to be announced an extension of what's called the opt-out HIV testing, which you know about. Oh, this is fantastic. So, in fact, there was research published today. I mean, this has all come together really well, but really, really good research published about how effective um, opt-out testing can be. So this is an area where anybody who's having a blood test in a hospital A&E unit will also have that blood tested for blood-borne viruses. So not just HIV, but hepatitis, hep- um, as well as HIV, um, unless they say they specifically don't want it. So an extra test will be done on a routine sample and you just pick up people who have got no symptoms at all of HIV. And the study um, that, that was recently completed and unpublished showed there were thousands of cases of bloodborne viruses picked up and over, I think it was like 580 cases of HIV alone. And that is, that's 580 people who are going to have preventative treatment to stop them passing the disease on to others who have every chance of living a normal, healthy life. Because yeah. HIV is a chronic long-term condition. It's not a killer anymore. And that's why this matters, because the drugs now are so good that literally one tablet a day, yeah. um, you cannot pass it on. Um, just, yeah. And and therefore, you know, we, we've met people who have have found out they've got HIV and obviously it's a huge shock. And, and, you know, I've met people who've said, I felt duped. I felt like my blood was taken and then I was told this information. It was my right to not know that information, but you know, very soon they realize that it's, it's in their interests to know that information. And, and really where this comes from is that when I was in, in the public health job, obviously we set up the HIV commission, which was to look at how we make real the ambition I'd, I'd written, which was that we would have zero new transmissions by 2030 and one of the things we came up with, one of the main things we came up with as a way to do that, as I subsequently joined the commission when I left government, was to to do this opt-out testing. And uh, it's been taking place in 33 hospitals in London, Greater Manchester, Sussex and Blackpool. So where prevalence is classed as high, or very, high very high by the NHS. And the point that Sir Elton John makes and we on the all-party group have been making is that Given that we now have a situation where the number of new infections of HIV are greater in the straight community than they are in the lesbian, gay and bisexual community, then HIV by its very nature is therefore it's anywhere you know it's yeah, as much in it's, Winchester, everywhere. it's yeah. as much as winchester as it is in you know traditionally yeah. high prevalence uh area like brighton so therefore we want to see opt-out testing rolled out much much wider agreed and that's what the secretary of state is going to announce this evening Fantastic. Um, encouraged by the presence of of greatness 
Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I don't know if you'll get to do any singing tonight, but I would love to be a fly on the wall. I hope the event is brilliant. And this, I know you've been campaigning and lobbying on this for a very long time, Steve, but I, I was involved in researching this at the University of Birmingham 10, 15 years ago, where they took loads of anonymous samples that had come in through um, GP surgeries and A&E departments in central Birmingham just to see what the prevalence was. And those were the sort of figures that helped us establish that there are so many undiagnosed people out there so yeah it'd be great to get this to really move the dial on hiv once and for all so we can hit that zero uh, transmissions by 2030 because you know as we were saying when uh kev fenton professor kev mm. fenton came in you know when you think about how far we've come when you think from the <sighs> 1980s when it, 80s. it yep. was a it was a death sentence and yep. that's why the tombstone ad was so powerful mm. and norman mm. fowler who i know now obviously he's a member of the house of lords and i got to know him a little bit during my time in parliament an incredible man you know who who made that advertising campaign in the face of opposition from Margaret yeah. Thatcher, who didn't want to do it mm. um you know he he's yeah, he saved a lot of lives and uh, we really hope that this will will change a lot of lives so so it's yeah. it's it's a good one i think i think over the years cases that i've picked up as a doctor whether i when I, mean, I worked for a while in the sexual health services in Omson gyne but also obviously many many years as a gp and um, i've picked up the odd case over the years and you know i you just i remember them individually because it was such an awful news to have to break to people 15 20 years ago and whilst now nobody wants to know they've got a chronic long-term condition that they've suddenly acquired actually the message we're giving people is very different and um yeah this is this is genuine progress yeah anyway something completely different well slightly okay? different that would be good what, what have you got on your mind steve tattoos piercings Oh, that sounds fascinating. I've got plenty of GP stories about those. Uh, well, I bet you have, yeah. Have you ever seen that programme, Tattoo Fixers? Oh, haven't I just? Yes. I used, yeah. This is the kind of sort of TV you don't normally admit to watching. Yeah. And there's something almost hypnotic about how people get themselves into the situation of having appallingly bad tattoos. Or well, tattoos look, the reason I raise it is because this week in Parliament, I led a debate on what I'm calling for, which is a new national licensing regime for cosmetic procedures, uh, you know, okay. Botox, Botox chemical yeah. peels, um, and also tattoo artists, body piercers and cosmetic clinics. So at the moment, if you are a medical professional like yourself, yeah, and you did any of these procedures you would of course be regulated mm -hmm. uh, through your professional body or through your royal college you would be insured yeah um but you could set up a cosmetic clinic and do any of these procedures with very little uh if any training you wouldn't have to prove that um and there's very little regulation there's certainly no national licensing regime around that mm. what really caught my eye on this was the welsh government under their Public Health Act 2017 mm. are about to early next year bring in a licensing regime Good. for 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 these clinics in Wales and we we took powers in the Health and Care Act 2022 to do it in England the government just recently closed the consultation on it and I want them to get on with this so if you are a tattoo or a piercing parlor at the moment you are you're licensed by your local council but of course that's quite patchy um there's no national standard to how what that looks like and mm. of course the confidence in the industry for patients and for practitioners 
takes a hit as a result. And there are many practitioners who've been campaigning for years for this licensing regime. And so my debate last night was all about that. It's all up on my website. You can see what I said and um, you can see what the minister said in response. Slightly disappointingly, I think we're probably going to take most of next year for them to respond to the consultation, um, which is frustrating because obviously with an election probably during yeah. the next 12 months. Um, but this this is something that has to happen. Have you, have you ever seen in your surgery people who come in with the the outcome of oh, where, yes. where, where tattoos or where cosmetic procedures go wrong? Yeah, I mean, so quite commonly. So, you know, I work in Litchfield, which is quite um, an affluent area overall. So we get um, lots of people who lot, lots of people who've had Botox, uh, women and men of a huge range of ages. And where Botox is done badly, that can be pretty devastating for people. I mean, although mostly it wears off um fillers gone wrong oh my goodness i've seen some horrible things and where fillers have got infected i mean obviously we're not talking particularly here about more major surgery like breast implants but breast implants that rupture and challenges there but to be honest one of the commonest things i see is more of an incidental thing or where people know that the nhs won't fix these things for them but they come in with uh, bad tattoos tattoos that they've had done on holiday abroad uh, where you've got no control no comeback at all um tattoos that have been infected or the other thing that happens is, is, is regret when people have had tattoos um obviously anything personal you put on a tattoo if your personal circumstances change then you're immediately carrying a permanent record of something you'd rather forget but also one of the there was a really popular vogue a few years ago for women having a cute dolphin tattooed around their belly button which is nice and sweet the problems arise when that abdomen distends in pregnancy and your cute little dolphin turns into a walrus it's not a good luck they never go back right oh my goodness oh yes absolutely i've seen some pretty bad things yeah it's i mean it's been fascinating because when i when i when i did the health job you know i was always doing the german debate or westminster debate and there's this sort of wonderful moment where i was doing a debate on incontinence and the green okay. the green annunciator screen here in parliament said steve Bryan, winchester incontinence and somebody <laughs> took a picture of it and it hangs up in a little frame in my downstairs toilet much to the amusement of anyone who ever visits us but uh, but last night there I was with uh, Steve Bryan, Winchester, tattoo, piercing, cosmetic procedures. And when I went into the dining room to go grab a bite to eat after the debate, you can imagine. But people were very keen to share. In That's fact, uh, one of my colleagues who shall remain nameless was keen to share how his Prince Albert piercing has <gasps> left him with serious complications. Um, oh. All I will say is that, you know, one hole good, two hole not. Oh, it just, oh, you need a perfect put back nicely by somebody who knows what they're doing get yourself a good registered surgeon to fix it but accept you'll have to pay privately the yeah. nhs will not help you with that one yeah I mean, well that, it, uh, that that prince albert you know i don't know what what was what he was up to but it's anyway a, it's it a must brave, have floated his boat it's a brave decision but not one i'd ever make uh, quite. not what i have to make um but steve the, i mean the people sometimes sort of say you know, are there golden rules about what to do with piercings and tattoos and so on the challenge is always that what feels good at one stage in your life, what looks good at one stage in your life doesn't stay that way. So, you know, my my top tips are always, if you're going to have a piercing or a tattoo, put it somewhere it can be hidden, that it won't cause offence to other people. And then if you yeah. do have regret, at least you can hide it cheaply. And as I said in the debate last night, I'm not being sniffy about this at all. You know, there is nothing inherently wrong with tattoos, nothing inherently wrong with piercings or, or no. with having cosmetic procedures. But, you know, I just think go into it with your eyes or whatever, whichever other part of your body <laughs> wide open 
uh, inform yourself as to who's doing it yeah. and then be able to be sure that they're properly regulated. Yeah. And right now it's that last bit that you can't do. Absolutely. And so that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to pursue. Botox anyway, is deadly poison. Remember, yeah. don't let people stick poison in you unless you know who they are, where they're going to stick it and they know what they're doing. Well, the- there's a lesson for us all, Doctor. We should get that on a um, on a T-shirt. Don't let anyone stick poison into you unless you know, you know what they're doing. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to talk about cancer and we're going to open the pod surgery. Okay, welcome back. Just us this week, Helen. We're going to talk about Cancer Research UK now, which have Good. yesterday, Tuesday, launched their manifesto a manifesto for cancer research and care it is a comprehensive uh, piece of work and it yeah. also comes with a even more comprehensive plan of action for the incoming government of whatever color that may be and where this comes from in many ways is you will know we've discussed this before the government have done a consultation and a call for evidence on something called the major condition strategy. They certainly the, have. The reasoning being that if you have cancer, you uh, age is obviously a big driver of, of that, and therefore you have several other comorbidities. And so mm-hmm. their, their, their intellectual argument is that it, it makes sense to have a major condition strategy. There is some sense to that. This was Steve Barclay's view. He didn't like lots of plans and strategies, so he wanted one major condition strategy. No, no indication yet that the new sector of state takes a different view. But mm-hmm. the one before Steve Barclay certainly did, Sajid Javid, he wanted there to be a cancer strategy, a 10-year cancer mission. Uh-huh. I think CRUK, like many in the cancer sector, are frustrated uh, that there is no cancer plan being worked on, a specific yeah. cancer plan. And so they've decided to come up with their own. And it's pretty good. Have you had a chance to look at it? I've had a quick look at it. As you say, it's a mighty plan, but but the, the concepts are great. I mean, and let's face it, you know, they're Cancer Research UK, a fantastic cancer charity. I mean, they're on the research side of things, whereas there are a whole plethora of cancer charities that we've worked with who are on the delivery arms. You know, I'm a trustee of Macmillan Cancer, but there are many great cancer charities out there. And what I like is when they all come together to support and a direction of travel. And I think they are all absolutely unified on the desire for a cancer plan for the country. And, and that's obviously a strong thread through this whole uh, uh, what have got so, a manifesto. It's it's a good read. So what they're saying is that three decades ago, England and Denmark were improving cancer outcomes at broadly the same rate. Since then, Denmark's raced ahead with yeah. pretty consistent funding, long-term cancer strategies being central to their success. Cancer is a fixable problem. So they've got yeah. five missions. Mm-hmm. Mission one, rebuild the UK's global position in research. We talked yeah. at length about this in our future cancer session on the select committee yesterday, in which the UK uh, Cancer Horizon part of that were there. Mission two, prevent thousands more cancer yeah. cases. Apple's That's our mission. Yeah. Mission three, diagnose cancers earlier and reduce inequalities. Good. Mission four, bring tests, treatments, and innovations to patients more quickly. So that's through the, you know, the research environment, the clinical trials environment, mm-hmm. get it, get it from bench to bedside, as they yeah. say, very quickly. And mission five, build a national movement to beat cancer together. Now, you know, we were talking when I was in Singapore about, you know, 
20-year plan and they have a national cancer strategy and it's all tied together with research with the political strategy and it's it's aligned that's what they want to see happen and they want to see it all reporting into the prime minister and you know what i i think they're onto something here if you look at every major economy that has that has a strong record in beating its cancer figures down they have a specific cancer plan you know Denmark we mentioned the US many of the Asian economies I think we are missing a trick in this country by not having it I mean, there's nothing not to like in this from our point of view, says Steve. I mean, obviously, prevention is our angle here on the podcast, particularly. And, you know, the primary and secondary prevention in terms of you know genuinely getting people to live healthier lives so they don't develop cancers in the first place. And then, you know, when we get something, when we find something early, it's preventing it from progressing or, or you know, deteriorating. Um, but I think this issue about diagnosing earlier feeds into a lot of interesting narrative at the moment about the pressures the NHS is under, diagnostic centres. You know, we know there's lots of investment happening across all four nations of the UK to try and bring a diagnosis quicker and earlier. But I think um, they, they've put it out, they've laid it out really well in this report. Yeah, so all credit to them. And they had a big launch of it at the Crick Institute last night, Tuesday night, which I wasn't able to go to because I was voting here. But, um, you know, I think this is a really serious piece of work. And I have already said to the new cancer minister, look, mm. you could earn some very early, very big brownie points with the cancer sector by saying, you know what, for the first time in two decades, England doesn't have a long term strategy for beating cancer. We're going to change that. A lot of the work's been done. You know, they've done the they've done the consultation that Sajid Jadbid asked for. They've added to that through the long term condition strategy and uh, the multi, the major condition strategy. And there's no re- there's no reason why they can't still have a major condition strategy that brings in stroke and CBD. Um, but you know, we need a specific cancer mission in this country. Uh, otherwise, I know pe- some people don't like plans, but my experience of being a government minister is a plan keeps you keeps you honest. It keeps yeah. your feet to the fire. Well, if you haven't got something to be measured against, it does make it harder for people to know how good you're doing. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, is it that time of day? It's that time of day for pod surgery. Okay. Shall I get a start? Yeah, I'll go first today. So, um, interestingly, we had one uh, question, James Walsall. Should we be worried about swine flu in the UK, Steve? Do you know much about swine flu or do you want me to fill you Well, I, I felt like I've had flu in recent weeks. Um, <laughs> it has been a swine. Whether it is a swine flu, I don't know. But <laughs> what I do know, Helen, is that um, I keep seeing this on social media, people that I know and who keep saying, anybody else got this bug that just won't go away? And uh, I, I've just had it now for a couple of weeks. And you know, I've done all the COVID tests and it's not that, but... You know, just so many people with coughs and colds and chest infections and these nasty winter nasties. Are you seeing a lot of this in the surgery? Yeah, absolutely loads. Look, I won't forget, we were, James, we're going to come back to swine flu in just a second, but let's just do the general winter viruses that are around. Yeah, Steve, we've had a massive bounce back in terms of really nasty viral illnesses at the moment, mostly viral, I have to say, in that people are presenting with coughs, um, chesty things, very snotty, congested stuff that goes on and on for weeks. So it's not just like your traditional cold that we used to think of, which would, you know, three or four days, a couple of paracetamol, taking fluids and you can get through it and carry on. These are laying people low type infections and a lot of them becoming chesty. And that's obviously when they tend to pitch up to the GPs, wondering if they need antibiotics, whether they need chest x-rays and so on. The vast majority don't need antibiotics. The vast majority need you to be kind to yourself and treat it as if it were uh, 
COVID, whether or not it is, you know, and you know, many people aren't testing anymore. The government advices we no longer need to test. So we don't know if it's COVID or not. Mostly it probably isn't. Uh, but seasonal viruses are always a challenge starting this time of year. The peak for influenza is usually in January. I've not seen the national surveillance figures recently, but my understanding is that influenza is not yet with us. This is mostly seasonal viruses. So I'm sorry you've had such a rotten time of it, but uh, be kinder to yourself, Steve. Yeah, I'm not very good at that. I'm not very good patient either, which I know you'll find hard to believe. But there you go. Um, okay. I'm not a very sympathetic nurse, mate. So, you know, I have to say, yeah, you should ask my poor husband about that. Jim K, just Jim K, dear Stephen Helen. Um, patients at risk from virtual GP appointments is a headline that I've read today and heard on the radio this morning. What is going on? So... And I still haven't forgotten, I haven't given you the answer on swine flu yet, and we are going to go back to that. Virtual GP appointments. Yeah, there was some interesting research that was talked about this morning, and yesterday, I think, about um, suggesting that people who are seen remotely, if they are of one of a few groups, so that's the elderly or people with communication difficulties or very young people, um, do worse than if they're seen face to face in a consultation. Now, the challenge of consulting with anybody is if you consult just on the telephone, you have one sense available to you. Essentially, you've got your hearing. If you do a video consultation, you can see and hear, but you haven't got the totality of the experience of seeing somebody. Now, bear with me with my little metaphor. But when I teach about communication skills, I, I talk about me being a five senses consultant. When I consult with patients, you don't just see and hear them, but you lay hands on people. You touch them, whether it's to examine the abdomen or feel the pulse. But sometimes feeling that somebody's trembling or they're sweaty, these things matter. You smell things as somebody walks through the consulting room door. Now, the number of people who tell me they don't smoke and they bring a waft of nicotine into the consulting room with them. But I've never tasted a patient, so we never lick our patients. That's not part of the GMC good, good medical practice. But you do have a sixth sense about you, about the totality of the patient. And that's it's much easier to hone that sixth sense when you've got the patient in front of you. So that's the five senses I'm talking about. Um, I do, and most GPs do, the majority of our work face-to-face, -face, but we do a large amount of it on the telephone nowadays. Obviously, during the pandemic, that balance shifted, so we did far more on the telephone or video, um, to a point that I think a lot of people weren't comfortable with, but that pendulum has swung back. So I'm interested in the dates of this research, and it does span the pandemic years, of course. But also, there's something for me about shared decisions about whether patients need to be seen or not. An awful lot of patients really don't want to come up to the surgery. They don't want to park their cars or take public transport. They don't want to take time out of work to come. They want the advice of a trusted healthcare professional that's convenient for them. And indeed, previous Secretary of State for Health have lobbied very hard for there to be far more access to GPs remotely. So there's a balance in all this, like all things, Steve. It's good for some people, but we need to think judiciously and use it but carefully. Does it, but does it end up just putting more pressure on the system anyway? Because you know, to give you, to give you an example, when I first had this uh, chest infection a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to, to my GP on the phone. And, uh, you know, he asked the questions and uh, eventually decided that it was a bacterial chest infection and, and gave me some antibiotics. Mm -hmm. But he said, because I haven't seen you, I would like you to touch base with a health professional at some point over the next 24 to 48 hours. So that I ended up being in the system face to face anyway. Is that typical or was that uh, a GP feeling less confident, for instance, uh, and deciding that they wanted to, to cover themselves with that? Would you say that? Um, 
it's difficult to tell. I'm, you know, I don't think commenting on one particular case is, is probably the right way to do it. Certainly, you have to ask far more questions when you're on the telephone. If, if I can see you and see that you're clammy looking or see that you've actually bounded into the consulting room and you're not remotely short of breath, I don't have to ask you as many questions as if um, as I do on the telephone. So, And there's this naive belief that telephone consulting is quicker and people think they haven't had a proper consultation with a GP on the phone where they've had more of my time than if they just come into the consulting room. So I think there are a few myths we have to explain. Yeah. Um, and certainly I, when you have patients on the telephone who want to do... They, they, the classic thing is with the cons- consulting, um, people on the way out the door sometimes pause as they're on their way out the consulting room and just say, oh, there's just one other thing, doctor. And often that's a really powerful, important thing. And they've only felt safe enough to tell you when they've built up trust. And of course, you lose that opportunity when you say, right, well, good to chat. Take care. Bye-bye. And the phone's yeah. down before there's no chance yeah. for the, so the door, thing. The door handle moment. Exactly. You, GPs talk about it, particularly with men, I'm told. Uh, particularly with men, yes. And there's something about trust and feeling safe to, to reveal things. I mean, that's the time when I've people have revealed uh, domestic abuse and violence, where people have revealed the mental health issues, or where people have told me about that funny little lump that they just weren't sure if it was significant or not. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So you do miss those things. However, there are times, particularly for people with uh, various infections and illnesses, where it's a very efficient thing, where people don't want to come out of work to travel you know, 20, 20 miles the opposite direction from where they work to come and see their GP. And we can all be more efficient in what we do. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Remote consulting has a hugely important place. It's not going away, but let's just make sure everyone mm. understands the limitations. Mm. Well, if you're interested in that piece of work, it's a BMJ. OK, I think we're going to leave it there. I have to go and talk to the Social Affairs Committee of the Chamber of Deputies of the Italian Parliament. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah, so, probably so very our, stylish. Our opposite number committee are coming to talk to us. Yeah, it probably will be very stylish. Yeah. I, I think I will look incredibly pale and stale and male. But anyway, one of the things they want to talk about is childhood vaccinations, which Good. of course they have a, they have a big national debate uh, about vaccinations in Italy. They? They, yeah, yeah, they're not they're not keen. You remember the MMR debates we had here um, a long time ago, twenty odd years ago. Yeah, they they still have those debates. So I'll be interested oh, to, no. to see what they want to talk about on on that. Anyway, we will be back with the the podcast podcast at stevebryan.com with your ideas and feedback. Find us on all of our social media channels and Steve. Uh, yeah. I'm going to pause you. Swine flu. There's been one oh, yes. new case detected in the UK in the last week. It's a new va- variant. They've o- they've been about 50 cases globally ever of swine flu in humans. This is nothing to worry about. There's no suggestion of human to human transmission. Um, you heard it here first, if you weren't already aware. Um, we'll come back to it if there is anything important about swine flu. Sorry, James, we got distracted. Very good, very good, very good. Anyway, look, um, we will hopefully be talking some more about Cancer Research UK's big plan. And uh, Michelle Mitchell, who is the the chief exec of CR UK, very good, very eloquent, um, and I I think uh, a fan of the pod. So it'd be good to get her on at some point and talk Excellent. about that. And uh, and I know we're going to talk about men's health at some point as well. Instead of instead of Steve's health, we'll talk about <laughs> men's health more generally. <laughs> and next time we'll have a Monty update, but no time for that this week. Take oh, care, everyone. Monty, yeah, well, Monty's okay. He's uh, he's off to his sitter. This weekend, um, he he's off to sister. he's off to Karen's, uh, which when I say Karen, he gets incredibly excited because Karen lets him lay on her sofa. Oh. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I'm such shot. a mean, mean daddy. I don't let him lie on the sofa or rather Mrs. Brian doesn't. I do when she's not out, when don't she's not around. Her. But don't tell her that. Anyway, uh, that's all for now. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.